If you would take a copy of God's Word this morning, we're going to turn open to the book of Hebrews as we continue our way through that book. This morning, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. If you want to grab a pew Bible there right in front of you, it's there on page 1002 in the pew Bible. This morning, we're looking at Hebrews chapter 3, again, verses 1 through 6 this morning. And let's go ahead and pray one more time before we open God's Word together today. Father, we do come before you this morning. We pray that you would open our eyes. We might have eyes to see your Son, the Savior of men and women and children. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, and that we would hear. This word would not fall upon rocky soil or be choked out by the cares and the concerns of this world this morning, that it would find our hearts to be fertile soil, and that the word would go deep within, and that it would produce a bountiful harvest. Truly, Christ might receive praise this morning from us. Think that we might give Christ praise this morning, give you praise this morning, our Father, and give praise to the Spirit this morning, our one triune God. What a privilege. We pray it would be true. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, this is a holy, inerrant, sufficient word of God. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Though the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. I want to read, just at the start this morning, a few different verses for you. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
Romans 12.2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Colossians 3.2. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14. Right thinking makes for godliness. And right thinking marks a person as godly. The writer of Hebrews is concerned here in these verses, and as he'll go on, he's concerned with yours and my thinking. What is it that we're thinking upon, and how do we think about things? And the message is very simple from this text, very simple. You and I are to consider Christ. Consider Christ. Again, let's remember the context. The Hebrew Christians are suffering a form of persecution. They see even greater persecution on the horizon. They are standing to lose an awful lot for the sake of following Christ. And so they are tempted to turn back to that which they knew before Judaism because following Christ is costly. And that's what they're finding. And here's the reality. It is costly to follow Christ. I think often we present the gospel to people and we present the gift of Christ who came into this world to live and to die for sinners and was resurrected on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father. This great message for sinners that need reconciliation with their Maker and their Creator, and we offer it as if once you receive Christ by faith, that everything is green pastures and blue skies and singing birds. It's just a pleasant and easy life. But it's not. Following Christ is costly. It's incredibly costly. In fact, it costs your life. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. The Christian life is a cross-bearing life. It's difficult. It is hard. And it is more than worth it. Because Christ is more than worth it. What do you do when things are tough? Will you consider Christ? Their life has been tough. It's becoming tougher. Consider Christ, he's saying to them. You push your thinking into this one corridor. Consider Christ. You've been out on a a Michigan summer day in June or 
July or yesterday, and it's gorgeous outside, and you think, I'm going to travel from this place to that place in Michigan, I'm going to get in my car, and I'm going to go visit this place, and you get in your car, and as you are driving along, you realize, as they often say, that there are only two seasons in Michigan, there is winter, and then there is construction, and you know that before you got up, all of those road workers decided that they were going to try and fix every single road that is between you and the place that is your destination. They just decided that. And you've been on one of those roads where it's now all been funneled into this one lane on the highway headed in one direction. There's no other way to get there, and they have decided, though they're only working on a hundred yards of the road, that they're going to make it one single file lane for miles and miles and miles, just to ruin your day. Just getting you to go in one direction. You can't veer off it. This is what the writer of Hebrews wants them to do in their thinking. Funnel it all down into one corridor. Consider Christ. Consider Christ. How could they return to Judaism when they are considering Christ? Now he's going to have them consider Jesus in various ways. Before he does so, he gently reminds them of who they are, or maybe not so gently. He says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. Therefore, it takes us back to the verses that preceded this in verses 14 through 18, where he is laying out that Jesus died, and he died for sinners, and as he died for sinners, he destroyed our adversaries. He destroyed the hold that Satan has over you. He destroyed the hold that death has over you, and he has delivered us from slavery. He helps, as he says, the offspring of Abraham, and so he is reminding them, even now as he launches into this, he is there to be of help to you now. Consider him. He calls them holy brothers, that is, you've been brought into the very family of God, and you are holy in this family of God. You've been set apart. You've been distinguished from the world. And don't you know, he is reminding them in verse 1, that you have a heavenly calling. That is, God has called you from heaven. He's called you from heaven to save you. And not only has He called you from heaven, but He has called you to heaven. He is calling you home. Let this be a reminder to you in the midst of all of your trials. Keep going is the implication. Remember who you are. And now he's going to show them that Jesus is more than worth following. He is worthy of more glory than even Moses. Moses who they are tempted to return back to as they turn back to Judaism. And he's going to do this in multiple ways. First... Jesus is the apostle and high priest of the confession of our house. Jesus is the apostle and high priest of the confession of our house. He is, he's giving us a twofold kind of office that Jesus holds within the household of faith. I'm a sucker for those family crests or those family seals that 
seems like every French and German and English and Irish and Welsh and uh, Italian family has. I don't know what happened to the Greeks in the midst of all of that. They didn't seem to understand that this was a cool thing and never developed it. But you have those different family crests and seals. If you ever see a Holopolis one, I want to know it because I'm probably related. But you have this crest or seal where it's some kind of image. And then there are words under it that are usually in Latin that are under that crest or seal and it is fixed on a, a pillar before a house or it's fixed upon a shield as they go into battle or it's fixed in a stained glass window that's been dedicated by their family. This is what, as a family, they are known by. John Calvin, uh, the reformer, created his own seal or his own family crest. It is famously open hands that are lifted up like this and they have a heart that is in these hands and then in Latin underneath that family crest or family seal it reads, my heart is offered to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. There's a confession that is to mark our entire family, the writer of Hebrews says. And the confession is pretty simple. You don't need Latin. You don't need French. You don't need German. It translates in every language. The confession is just Jesus. Jesus. Our common confession is Christ. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. It's the same root word that is found in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. We confess Christ. And confess here notes a real formal, verbal, public declaration that this is what I believe, or maybe even more importantly, this is the one in whom I believe. And that's a reason that we press church membership and say you need to become a member of a church and you need to stand before a body and you need to take vows. You need to confess publicly that you believe in this Christ. I confess Jesus. There are two offices that are the focus of the writer of Hebrews here that we confess about Christ as part of the household of faith. He says Jesus is the apostle of our confession and He's the high priest of our confession. Apostle means one who was sent or the sent one and a Jew automatically hearing the word apostle would have thought of Moses immediately. He was the one that was sent by God. He was sent from Midian all the way down to Egypt to be the redeemer of God's people out of Egypt. When you and I think of apostle, we think of the 12 disciples that Jesus sent out and he said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. But the great apostle. The apostle above all apostles, the writer of Hebrews is saying, is Jesus. It's Jesus. He was sent. 
He was sent with more authority. He was sent further. And He was sent for a greater purpose than any other. By His heavenly Father. Jesus Himself will say this over and over about Himself. In John 17, that high priestly prayer. When He's praying, He says, And this is eternal life, that they know You, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. And later he will say, for I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you have sent me. John Owen will count over 34 times just in the Gospel of John alone that it will be said of Jesus that he was sent. He is the apostle of our confession. Do you really want to turn away, the writer of Hebrews is saying, from this one that your Father in heaven sent to you? Do you want to turn away from him? Moses was also sent by God. And he was faithful, as the writer says, in all of God's house. In verse 2, Moses was sent. Jesus was sent. Two distinct periods in redemptive history of God's people. Both were great apostles. Both Moses, both Christ. But notice that there are not two houses. What is this house? If you look down at verse 6, you'll see, and we are His house. That is, God is building up His people into a dwelling place. Peter will say that in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says that Christians are living stones which are being built up as a spiritual house. There is only one house. There are not two peoples of God, nor two salvations. God does not have a plan for Israel and then a separate plan for the church. Israel is the church of the Old Testament, and the church is the Israel of the New Testament. We are all offspring of Abraham, as is his argument going all the way back to verse 16. All who have faith are united in this same house. So you can't turn away from Christ and run back to Abraham. You can't do that. Because He sent His Son as the Apostle, the Apostle of the faith. You're to follow Him. He is also the high priest of this house. You've confessed that, Hebrew Christians. Again, they're tempted to turn back to Moses. Moses was also a priest in this house. You know that Aaron, his brother, was ordained as the high priest, but it's also true that Moses is the one that often is the one that goes between God and the people and mediates on their behalf as a priest. He was a priest in this house. But Jesus is the priest in this house. He's the great go-between God and man. Because He is the God-man. He holds a distinct place in the household of faith. As He alone is the God-man. Verse 4, He's making that clear. Jesus is God. And that's a pretty good interceder with God as one who is God. Why would you go back to Moses? Consider Jesus. Confess Him. Consider Him again. 
After giving us these two offices in the houses, he then introduces two important relationships that Jesus has in relation to this house. He's the builder and he's the owner. Verses 3 and 4, he's the builder. Consider this. Moses was part of this house, a great part of this house. But the builder of this house, you have to understand, Hebrew Christians, is worthy of more glory than the house itself. And he's the builder. My hometown of Springfield, Illinois, there's a a famous house that people will travel from all over the country to come look at. It's a beautiful house. It's a glorious house. It's called the Dana Thomas House. It's especially wonderful at Christmas. I've been through that house probably two dozen times. It's a famous house because it was a famous architect who designed the house and built the house. Frank Lloyd Wright. Now, if you didn't want to go to Springfield, Illinois, I don't know why you wouldn't want to go to Springfield, Illinois, but if you decided you just wanted to see a Frank Lloyd Wright house, there's a couple in Okemos. Uh, It's not Springfield, but there are a couple there. And if you were to go there and it was an open house and Frank Lloyd Wright was standing there and taking tours through the house, when you got done going through the house and see it in all of its glory and all of its beauty, you wouldn't congratulate the house. You would turn to Frank Lloyd Wright and you would hail him as a master architect and Congratulate him as a master builder. This is the argument of the writer of Hebrews. You you, you don't congratulate and glory in the house above the architect himself or the builder himself. Moses is great in the house. He, He is an amazing part of the house. But Jesus is the builder of that house. And he is worthy of much more honor than Moses. Moses is only what Moses is because Christ made him that. Christ is greater. He's not only the builder though, he's also the owner. Verses 5 and 6. Moses was a great, as the writer says in verse 5, a great servant in the house. It's a unique word here that only appears here in the New Testament It's not a demeaning term that he was a servant. Rather, it's very much a term of honor. He was a unique servant in the house of God. A servant of deity is exactly how it would be translated. Servant of a deity. Moses is unique. He, He will serve in all three of the great offices in the Scriptures. He will be a prophet. He will be a priest. He will be a king. He will be the great redeemer of God's people out of Egypt. He will be called a mediator of the Old Covenant. In Deuteronomy 34, upon his death at that eulogy, as they read and kind of summarize Moses' life, they say this, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses 
whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. Moses is worthy of honor, but Jesus is worthy of more. He's the owner. He's the son. He's not just a servant, as verse 6 tells us. Notice the comparisons here. Again, Moses was a great man, but in every way Christ is superior. Moses is a servant. Christ is the son. Moses is in the house. Christ is over the house. Moses is in another's house. Christ is over his own house. Consider Christ. All your trials, he's saying, consider Christ. It's silly. It's just silly that these Hebrew Christians would want to turn back to Judaism when Moses himself pointed them to Christ. What he says in verse 5, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Even Moses, this great apostle and great priest and prophet and redeemer, was pointing them to the ministry of Christ to come. All that he did in the house was pointing to the builder and owner of the house. If you are reading the Old Testament Scriptures and not finding yourself pointed to Christ, you're doing it wrong. Jesus Himself will say that. And He's on that robe with the disciples to Emmaus and He's the resurrected Christ and they don't notice Him. My favorite passages is and He's walking along with them. And He is chiding them for not Knowing that the Scriptures taught that the Christ had to suffer. You see, they're suffering. They're disillusioned in their faith. They don't know whether to keep looking to Christ. They're thinking about returning back to what they knew before on the Emmaus Road. And he takes them and quote, we're told, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. It all is meant to point Him. But Hebrews is saying you have to keep considering Him. So He gives one great application. They must continue to hold fast their confidence and their hope in Christ. Hold fast. We must hold fast to Christ, even as He holds fast to us. Now, my ultimate hope is not in my holding fast to Christ. My ultimate hope is Christ hold upon me. He preserves those who are His. But it's also true that those who are His persevere. He preserves, we persevere. The greatest sign that you are Christ is that you persevere to the end. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying to them, 
hold fast. You've confessed this Christ. You've placed your hope in this Christ. He is the great apostle. He is the great high priest. He is the builder and he is the owner of the household of faith. You're his. You're his. So now that things have become a little more difficult, don't think. Don't think about abandoning him. You're his. Keep considering him and keep holding to him. Keep on clinging to Christ. There's nothing back there for you. Now listen, here's reality, right? Close a few applications. Here's reality. It's just not easy. It's not easy to keep clinging to Christ. Some of you are wrestling with that even this morning. Through different trials or different hardships that have come into your life. Maybe he's forgotten me. A blind eye to me. I'm just not sure that it's worth it to follow this Christ. Maybe you're not tempted to turn back to Moses. I think very few of us in this room are tempted to turn back to Moses. But whatever it is that you enjoyed before you came to Christ, whatever it is that there was comfort in and pleasure in, Maybe it's the ecstasy that sex or drugs or drunkenness provided. Or maybe it's just the ease of slothfulness and laziness. Or maybe it was frankly just the pleasure of living for self. There's the pleasure in that. Red Hebrews would say to you and I, consider Christ. Do not know that Christ is superior to all that. If there was anything pleasurable, if there was anything enjoyable, if there was anything restful, if there was anything good in the things, they were simply pointing you to something far more pleasurable and enjoyable and restful and good. Christ. It's greater. It's worth it. I think, well, this seems like maybe it's just a period of time and go through this as a young Christian, these Hebrew Christians, they must be young Christians to be faltering this way. And I think often we look at that and we think, ah, as we grow in the Christian life, as we get older in the Christian life, things become easier. It becomes easier to cling to Christ. That's just not true either. It doesn't become easier. It's a daily and continual pursuit. There are always going to be holes in this world. As long as you and I are holding to Christ in this world, there are going to be things that are seeking to pull you away from Him. In our staff meeting this week, I had a 
going around and think, just give us one thing before our prayer time together. Give us one thing that you're thankful for that you've seen in URC lately. And the thing that came to my mind was, I've been thinking about it this week, uh, having watched it, among a half dozen or so of our people this week, I was just thankful for some of our older generation in this church. They just keep on clinging to Christ. They're not resting upon their laurels. They're not resting upon what they were or what they have done. They haven't thrown in the towel. Things have gotten hard. They keep pursuing Christ and keep laboring for Christ for our common good and for His glory. I was reading a biography of a, a pastor recently. Passed away not too long ago. And a pretty well-known pastor. And he was writing that in his 80s, he and his wife would often reflect that it was harder for them to have faith in Christ in their 80s than it had been previous in their life. It doesn't get easier. You have to keep at it. It's a continual, lifelong pursuit. It takes effort to consider Christ. It's a discipline that is required until the end. And you have to keep running until the day you finish your faith. That run and your faith is turned to sight. Keep at it. takes real effort. Do you consider Christ regularly? Consider Christ. I think it's one of the most neglected disciplines in the Christian life in our day and age, and it's just becoming harder and harder to do. Previous generations would look at us and go, what is wrong with these Christians? Because you and I we don't meditate as Christians. Not, not that Eastern mysticism where you, you empty your mind of all thought and try and become one with the universe, whatever that is. No, it's Christian meditation where you fill your mind with the person of Christ and with the acts of Christ and the promises of Christ and the teachings of Christ. And you just turn those over in your head. You keep thinking upon them. But you see, that takes effort. That takes quiet. That takes solitude. Do you ever just sit quietly? Consider Christ. So much of our languishing in the Christian life. So much of our dryness. So much of you and I getting nothing out of worship. How can that be possible? Because we're not considering Christ. It takes real effort. Considering Jesus is not something that just happens. 
requires intentionality, it requires time. So busy, often the most necessary thing remains undone. The most mature Christians I know are those who purposefully and intentionally and regularly consider Christ. The great strategies of our adversary, dear Christian, is to keep you busy so you're distracted from considering Christ. To turn screens off. To turn the music off. To get away from people, to sit and quietly consider Christ, to make that part of your living for Christ. How often we occupy our minds with our trials and our circumstances, which just distance us from Christ. Robert Murray McShane, the Wonderful 19th century Scottish Presbyterian pastor famously said this. He said, for every look at self, take ten looks at Christ. I want to change that a little bit this morning and say, for every look at your circumstances, take ten looks at your Christ. Consider Christ. It's all, that's all he's telling them to do. Isn't that fascinating? They're facing all kinds of persecution, suffering, They're struggling to maintain the faith. And all He tells them to do, consider Christ. Finally, notice that your faith and your hope are always tied together. He has called you and will call you home. Let your faith feed your hope and let your hope Feed your faith. This is one of the great secrets of the Christian life and the Christian faith in the midst of trying circumstances. We allow our faith to feed our hope. And we allow our hope to feed our faith. That's what he's telling them to do. And all of that is done under the umbrella and in the actual act of considering Christ. Stop Letting your circumstances dictate to you. Consider Christ. Stop wallowing in the pit of despair. Consider Christ. Consider Christ. He's worth following and keep following. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you have given us so great a Savior. That he is worth our every thought. He is worth our every effort. He is worth our every pursuit. He is worth our very life. We're thankful that you sent him into this world as the apostle of our faith. Be our high priest before your throne. You sent the Son who owns this house and has built this house and that you have called us home. 
we continue to cling to Him until the very end. We pray all of this in the strong name of this great and mighty Savior, Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.